Hi everyone, and welcome to another sauntering podcast with me, Paul White. I'm coming to you from the beautiful town of Weymouth in Dorset by the sparkling blue sea. It never rains, it's always sunny. This podcast began during lockdown. We galloped through or sauntered through many, many books of the Bible now. I'm a disciple of Jesus and my job is to encourage you and encourage other people to walk with him. Good morning, lovely saunterers. It's a bank holiday in England, another bank holiday, because we have now a crowned king. He has been crowned king, and it was a big day, except I was at a wedding, so I kind of miss most of it, but it was a good wedding. (laughs) It was a lovely wedding, in fact. And um, yes, we pray for our king. So welcome, everyone. It's good to see you. And today we're looking at Hebrews chapter 9. It's a quite a dense chapter. It's quite long, so I'm going to cut it in half and hopefully we'll get some good fruit from it It, just in two bits rather than trying to cram it all in together and miss out loads. So Heavenly Father, we want to thank you today for your incredible word. Lord, we want to thank you that you are still speaking to us through this word today and it's living and active and we open our hearts to you, Lord. And we want you to reveal yourself to us today. Oh, Lord, come on. Lord, not just intellectually, not just, oh, that's interesting, but actually living, breathing revelation, the risen Jesus moving in our hearts, living in our lives, in all your power and glory. That's what we want to see, Lord. And so we open ourselves up to you today. We love you. Amen. Good morning, Lisa. Happy bank holiday. So Hebrews chapter 9. So the writer here is going to go into some detail about the old covenant rituals that were practiced centered around the tabernacle that Mo- which was this big tent that Moses erected in the wilderness when the people were en route to Egypt on a long, slow, circuitous route that took 40 years. Didn't need to, but it did. We've already touched on that a bit earlier in the book. And so he says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, or the holy of holies in some translation, verse 4, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. 
Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Good morning, Alison. I hope you're well. Good morning, Ingrid. Um, so this is this is really interesting. So given the limitations of the Old Covenant, which the writer to the Hebrews has been kind of explaining and really emphasizing that this is limited. It It is a covenant that God made with the human race, well, the nation of Israel exclusively, actually. He made this covenant and it had, although it had limitations, which the writer has been kind of opening up to us and helping us to understand and helping us to see it was very clearly, explicitly about holiness. It had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now, holy means set apart, exclusively belonging to God. And so a place that is devoted entirely to him in this case. And so Israel, the nation of Israel, was to be his people, exclusively his people belonging his inheritance, designed to have a relationship with him and to know him and to then kind of bring out that knowledge and bring that revelation of him into the rest of the world. Actually, they kind of clung on to the exclusivity a bit too much and became a bit xenophobic as we have, there are plenty of scriptures to talk about that and particularly we discover that in the New Testament, don't we? But there was this very clear emphasis on holiness. So you had these the tent, which was holy in itself. It was surrounded by a, a, an outer boundary, like a fence, um, which was the outer courtyard. And then the first place you went in, which was quite big, which was the bigger of the two sections, was called the holy place. So even as you went into that holy place, it was the language and everything was holy. It was set apart. And the only people who were allowed in there were the the priests who were conducting their business and the rituals associated with the priesthood. And so he tells us that in that first section were the lampstand, which was symbolizing the, the presence of God. It was kept lit, the seven branch lampstand. Um, and then the, um, sorry, and then the table with the showbread, the bread of the presence on is interesting. I think in Hebrew, if I remember correctly, the word there for presence, bread of presence is the bread of face, the faces that were the face. So it's like this, this kind of bread laid out on the table was, um, symbolic of a face-to-face encounter with God where like we would have over a meal together and so the idea of the covenant meal goes on and on into the New Testament doesn't it and we've talked a bit about that and we'll talk about it some more good morning Dave good to see you good morning Kathy and so this was this this whole the language of this is all holy it's all set apart it's it's exclusively belonging to God but then there was this second section behind the curtain and here the symbolism is so profound you've got this this um holy place but then there's the most holy place or the holy of holies behind this big thick curtain 
that we've talked about again. And in there is the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense and the high priest. And inside this this Ark of the Covenant, he tells us what's in there. It's a golden urn containing some manna and Aaron's staff that budded. How interesting that the manna didn't go moldy and Aaron's staff didn't kind of the buds and leaves and fruit on it didn't just wither and die. But somehow in the presence of God, they are kept eternally fresh. I mean, we could just go on thinking about this kind of stuff forevermore, couldn't we? But it, And also the tablets of the covenant. So the Ten Commandments written in stone by the finger of God, inscribed by the very finger of God, are in this Ark of the Covenant that are in the most holy place. And verse 5, he describes it and he says, Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So cherubim were winged angelic creatures who live in the the very presence of God. And this was one of the exceptions of um, one of the commandments was to not make any graven image, like any any image sculpted, like to look like any creature and yet. On the Ark of the Covenant, for some reason, God permitted that these two winged creatures could be created um, out of gold, beaten gold, to kind of cover the place. It was called the mercy seat where the presence of God literally dwelt. So in this physical space, in the physical earth, among the people of Israel, his holy people, the people exclusively belonging to God was this place. It was created by man. It was, in, and yet it somehow God was pleased to allow His glory to dwell in that place, to kind of inhabit that physical space. And I think this is just such a profound thing that God, who lives in unapproachable light, would somehow allow a manifestation of his presence among these people who were so difficult for him and so painful at times. And yet he loved them. And what he was doing, he was foreshadowing something where Jesus himself would come and dwell among us. And so for those 40 years, the presence of God dwelt among his people. He tabernacled among his people. When John tells us that Jesus um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us that he talks about Jesus, the the son of God coming and dwelling among us. The language he uses is the same. He tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent. And this you've got this incredible metaphorical imagery going on through the Old Testament, which no doubt for the average Hebrew believer, uh, average Hebrew citizen, shall we say, living in the wilderness. They probably didn't understand fully really what it all meant, but they could see the great big cloud of fire at night and the cloud by day over the the tabernacle symbolizing the presence of God. And it was obviously focused in some way on this mercy seat. And the language is incredible, isn't it? And so verse five, it says, above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. It's interesting that where God dwells, where God focuses, his his presence is focused, is a place of mercy. And 
We've already seen that, haven't we, in one of the previous chapters about being able to approach the throne of God with boldness and find mercy and grace in our time of need and that kind of thing. So so this, again, is like really powerful, rich imagery. And the writer says, but of these things, we don't have time to talk about now, particularly in detail. So we're so. There's a temptation, isn't there, to go into the fine detail and draw out all these things. And there's some brilliant um, material out there of people who do that and have done that. Um, but we're going to skim it a little bit today simply because that's what the writer to the Hebrews is doing as well. So verse, but there is, the point is that there's this huge protocol and understanding that this is about holiness, that God is a God of great holiness he requires us to be holy and set ourselves apart for him just like these priests were set apart for him just like the nation of israel was supposed to be set apart for him anyway verse six these preparations having thus been made so when they've done their business in the outer court they've washed and they've done burnt offerings and all the rest of it and then they go in and these these um priestly duties they Verse six, it says, these preparations having been thus thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, that's the holy place, performing their ritual duties. So this was a kind of place they'd regularly go in and um but into the second only the high priest goes and he but once a year. So underlining just how holy that most holy place is the only person who can go in there is the high priest and he only once a year and then it's with an elaborate business of shedding blood and of an animal and so on good morning ruth and good morning fran um so once a year not without taking blood which he offers for himself and the unintentional sins of the people Right, so he. This is a. I, I would imagine it was with some trepidation that the high priest would go into the most holy place. You can imagine the hush, kind of falling on the camp, and this sense of whoa, this is this is such a profound moment, and uh, carrying the blood and and going in there to offer incense before God, and so. Um, verse, so this is, so really just underlining how holy it is, but verse eight, he says, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulation for the body imposed until the time of reforma uh, reformation. <laughs> this is really, really interesting because the whole symbolism of the tabernacle and the arrangement of the two chambers, the holy place and the most holy place, the very fact that all of that was there and this huge thick curtain was separating the priests from the most holy place and even the holy place separated the the general people of the nation from the 
you know, from the priestly duties and stuff that were going on there. There is this sense of God keeping us out rather than drawing us in. And yet there is this invitation for the high priest to go in once a year. But it's like the so what the but the what the writer's drawing out here is that this whole setup, the Holy Spirit is speaking through it if we can understand it, if we can comprehend it. And so what he's trying to do is give us some commentary and some exposition so that we can understand a little bit more of what the symbolism is all about because this whole thing was God's design Moses got the design of the tabernacle not from a kind of like let's imagine a nice place to worship God and let's see what we can come up with let's put let's have a brainstorming session come up with some nice ideas and draw some drawings he received it by divine revelation on the mountain in the presence of God while the trumpets are sounding and it's a big cloud and everything over the mountain no one else up there but him and God and God gives him this revelation so this is from the Holy Spirit this whole thing is a revelation from the Holy Spirit. Every scripture that we have is given to us by the Holy Spirit. It's breathed out by God himself. Good morning, Sergey. Great to see you. And uh, so he's saying that the Holy Spirit indicates or is indicating that the way into the holy place is is not yet opened as long as all of this is still standing. So as long as the tabernacle is still functional and so on, there is God is in that holy place and the rest of us are on the outside and certainly the Gentiles are nowhere near. So, which is you and me. Um, so, and it's symbolic for the present age. So it was it was speaking loudly to the people um alive at the time that this was an exclusive holy arrangement where God was kind of hidden away somewhat from his people although this massive big cloud over the the tent kind of made it pretty obvious where he was so right hold on lost my place and so this arrangement in he says it can't these gifts and sacrifices that are offered cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper. So they had this ritual which was very much to do with following procedures, following instructions and doing certain things and offering certain food and eating in certain ways with certain people. And it's food and drink and various washings, which kind of underlines the holiness and the requirements of God that he requires something of us, but it doesn't actually perfect. It doesn't complete. It doesn't make us finished. It doesn't complete the job of cleaning our conscience and taking away our sin. But really, it's just there as a kind of temporary measure, it seems, until the time of Reformation. Well, now the writer to the Hebrews is telling us what all this is about, what this Reformation really is. So verse 11, but when Christ appeared, and we have this sense again and again in the book of Hebrews, it's like God spoke to us in many ways by his prophets, chapter one, but now he's spoken to us by his son. And he talks in chapter two 
blah de blah but we see Jesus. And there's this sense of, but when Christ appeared, there's something he's underlining. He's using um, the, his style of writing to convey something, but now Jesus. So all this blah, 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 all this before, this limit, the limitations, etc., etc., that we can, that I'm explaining to you, but when Christ appeared, and this is the massive turning point of history, when Christ appeared. And so when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is amazing. So he's using language, he's saying, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, so now we're in a different era. This is a different, oh, this is an entirely different order of things. So this priesthood that is of the order of Melchizedek, as he was saying, this is like a whole new package of blessings and possibilities and promises from God and in a in a covenantal relationship that didn't exist before. So, and and now he's saying, he's using this language, he says, through the greater and more perfect tent. This is something different. He says, it's not even made by hands. It's not even made with hands. It's not even part of this creation. And so the reality, so what, what the... Jew, the Hebrew people and the Jews alive at the time of writing this letter and the Jews alive at the time of Jesus and the early apostles, they had been entirely conditioned to looking at the shadow. So their whole business of worship and kind of ritual to do with worship was about the shadow. So their processes, their procedures, their their activities within the temple or the tabernacle before that were about the shadow. So they were, it's like, this is what we do. We do this. We make this sacrifice. We wash in this way. We come on this day. We do this on this day. We celebrate this festival, etc., etc. And Jesus grew up in that, of course. Jesus was part of that and went to the temple as part of that culture. But all the time, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, actually, this was only a shadow. So what they were doing was they were faithfully observing these requirements from God, which were only ever a shadow. And now the reality has come and the reality is Jesus. And so this entirely different order of business has now begun. So he's gone into this greater and more perfect tent that is the very actual presence of God. <clears throat> it's not made with hands. It's not even part of this creation. Can you imagine it? We have to let our minds be completely blown by what God is saying here through the book of Hebrews. The, the reality that the temple and the tabernacle were a shadow of 
is so much greater. If you look at my shadow, it's flat, it's two-dimensional, it doesn't really look like me very much, it, it's kind of stretched or compressed, and it's kind of, yeah, you can tell certain things about me, I suppose, from looking at my shadow, but when you see me, you see all the detail of my face. And I have to say, there's a lot more detail on it than there used to be. In the <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. And that's happening to us all, isn't it? It's like every kind of year, there's a few more crinkles and wrinkles and stuff. But as we, when we look at the reality, there's so much more to see, isn't there? When we look at the reality of what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's done, and the heavenly places that he's gone into and the way that he's made for us and all the rest of it. Man alive. This is so much greater and more glorious because it's not even of this creation. So the heavens, the, the holy place that Jesus has gone into existed before the creation of anything. Before the creation of the universe. This whole reality was in existence. And so Jesus has gone into this more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once and for all into the holy place, verse 12, holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Wow. Thus securing an eternal redemption. Redemption is a big word. It's got lots of meaning. It it really means he is making a purchase a he's buying you and i back out of slavery into freedom but he's kind of not just rescuing us to live in a kind of rescued state <clears throat> but kind of still the same but actually he redeems our whole entire future and eternity as well so that we discover that our true identity in God as sons and daughters of God, where we are elevated into a status that we just completely do not deserve and could never even hope for. He elevates us into this incredible status as sons and daughters of God. He lavishes his affection on us. He loves us. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. And he says, I've got you now forever with me and we're going to live together. And so like we have an eternal redemption. This is just so incredible. Right. Verse 13. So so he didn't pay for it by the blood of goats and bulls and stuff, but it in calves. But it was by his own blood, that perfect, spotless Lamb of God, blood shed for you and me that we celebrate when we take communion together and so on. We remember the blood of Jesus. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more, and here's this again, this language, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And what he's saying really there is that there was some kind of benefit from for the um, worshipper by the shedding of the 
blood of the animals used in the sacrifices. Otherwise, God would never have said do it. There was some benefit, but it's a shadowy kind of benefit that isn't lasting. And that's why the sacrifices had to be made time and time again. But now we see that that how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, really important that we understand that in this whole business of salvation and redemption and all the rest of it, that this isn't just Jesus striking out on his own. This is Jesus through the eternal spirit, the spirit of God, obeying the will of the Father. So it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all completely, fully, 100% involved in this process of salvation and redemption. It's not just like Jesus is the fall guy who's kind of, well, Jesus can do it. He can take the hit. No, actually, it's through the eternal spirit. So if we could understand, man, I, I can't understand. It's beyond me that somehow through the eternal spirit, Jesus is offering himself as this sacrificial lamb and his blood is being shed. So how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit without blemish, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so what he's saying there is that this work of Jesus's death and the redemption that comes from the shedding of Jesus's own blood cleanses us not just temporarily but eternally. It's secured for us an eternal redemption. It pays for my sins past, present and future by God's amazing grace and amazing kindness. And so as someone's reminded me, we it's not like they're just temporarily covered but our sins are obliterated and washed away and we're made clean. Our consciences are made clean so that, like he said in the previous chapter, we can approach the throne of God with boldness. We don't have this stabbing conscience all the time making us hide away. If we do, we need to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, come on, I need you to forgive me because I am still afflicted by a guilty conscience. I need that full assurance that hope that you have totally forgiven me. So I come and I just put put myself at the feet of your cross again and say, Lord Jesus, let the blood that you shed on that cross take away all of my sin. Cleanse my conscience. Let me be free to come into your presence with boldness and confidence to find grace and mercy. Wow. So the, when he's writing here about cleansing us from dead works, purifying our conscience from dead works, it's the things that just lead to death, but also the kind of activities that the Jews were involved in, the Hebrews were involved in with the rituals there, they are no longer required. The, the, um, the limitations of the old covenant sacrifices now when we come to faith in Jesus, we're no longer relying on these dead works. We're relying on the finished, perfect work of Jesus to save us completely to the uttermost. Wow.
So we'll have a look at the second part of the chapter tomorrow. Have an amazing day, you guys, and God bless you and let his beautiful presence surround you today and fill you with his peace. In Jesus' name. If you've enjoyed this podcast, that's brilliant. That's exactly what I hope for. Please do share it, like it, pass it on, get it out there. Thank you so much. Have an amazing day.